Good morning. Am I am I on? Can you hear me? Yeah? No? We're not on yet? Can you uh yeah, we'll wait. It's all good. We're on now. Can you hear me now? Yeah? A little bit? I don't want to talk too loud because I might start yelling today then. Just kidding, by the way. We don't do that here. At least I hope not. Uh, you can turn to 1 Corinthians 7. Uh, we're going to start at verse 17 here in a few minutes. Um, I'm going to try and stick to my notes today because there's a lot of context from last week that I want to bring up uh, just in case you missed last week or, or you weren't able to be here or you haven't caught up or or if you just haven't ever read that section before. Because today, this this next part, we're going to actually do verse 17 right to the end of the chapter, which is a lot of verses. So um, I, I want to do my best to clarify some things that we discussed last week. We began chapter 7 in verse 1 by saying this. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote. So we're reminded here that a group of in Corinth has written to Paul asking for either clarification or instruction uh, on a number of things. And we're not exactly sure how many questions they asked, but Paul seems to want to clarify a lot of different scenarios here in chapter 7. And so, you know, either they asked a lot of questions or he realized in their questioning that they understood this this very wrong. Uh, And so he started, and, and it's all in the beginning of chapter 7, it's all about marriage, right? If you remember a couple of weeks ago uh, in chapter 5, there was sexual immorality within the church uh, that was just just awful. And Paul said, we got to deal with this. And he was very direct and, and somewhat harsh in some senses. But as we looked at it, his goal was that people would recognize that to be a part of a church, to be a part of a community of believers means we have to be submitting to God. And if someone claims to follow God and yet is clearly going against Scripture, Paul says we have to deal with those things. They need to be uh, reprimanded, so to speak, so that they see the error of their ways, so that they come back uh, into submission of the Holy Spirit. And so that's Paul's goal. So it's always restorative. But what we find then now in chapter 7 is it's almost the opposite extreme. It's that they've been teaching that uh, it's good for people to not even have sex. Sex is wrong all across the board. And, and Paul's trying to clarify these things and trying to say, no, like God has created sex. It's, it's his design. It's good. But misused out of, uh, in a bad context, it can cause great amounts of damage. So he's trying to say, while this in chapter 5 is on this extreme and is wrong, flipping it all the way to the other extreme doesn't actually fix anything. And, and we know that in our lives as well is most of the time we're trying to find a balance of not being extreme on either side, because either side always has massive problems and ideology uh, to it. So Paul says that uh, he actually commends uh, singlehood. Singlehood? Is that a word? Singleness, I guess, is the correct word. Um, and he's, he's going to do more of that this morning. So I don't want to spend a lot of time there, but, but he commends it and says there's actually benefits and it's actually good. But then he says, but marriage is, is good too. Um, at, at the end of the day, in, in verses 6 and 7, you kind of see him saying, I wish more were like me who are single because there's value to that. However, each one has his own gift from God. 
And so if you are married, your marriage is meant to represent Christ's covenant relationship with the church. So your marriage is meant to speak loudly to the world, not necessarily about you two, as much as it is meant to speak about God and showing God's love and his faithfulness and his forgiveness and his gentleness and his patience, all those things. Your marriage is meant to be a representation of that so that the world would see that. But then he... uh, he talks about uh, marriage in the sense of now there's a reality of divorce that does happen in our cultures. And then he also talks about remarriage. And so we talked about a few very specific scenarios, and I'm not going to deal with those specific scenarios as such this morning, but he deals with very few specific scenarios to say, if this happens, then that marriage covenant is, is broken. And you as a, uh, you as a believer now, if so... Maybe I should give a little specific. If you're married to somebody, you've come to Christ and they haven't. Paul says there's two responses here. Is if they're willing to stay with you, if they're willing to stay married to you because they still love you, then stay married to them. Because you have an excellent opportunity to share the love of Christ with them day after day after day. But he also says, but if they, uh, if the unbelieving partner says, no, I don't want anything to do with this anymore, and they leave, then he says, you are freed from that covenant. You are no longer under that obligation. And he says, and you are free to marry again. Now, if you remember, we looked at uh, some texts in Matthew last week where Jesus talked about sexual immorality and how that can break the marriage covenant. But I didn't talk about this, and, and I think it was Sunday afternoon. I was outside here in the parking lot. I don't know what I was doing. Um, it's a long walk to church, so I was, you know, walking to church when someone drove by. I don't know. And, uh, and somebody stopped by that had seen the service and they wanted to chat with me for a few minutes. And they mentioned something that I neglected to say. Is this. We should never be reading this text or the one in Matthew looking for a reason to divorce our spouse. We should not be trying to find justification for it. Um, and as we talked, he, he asked me this question. He said, if God forgives us of all our sins, doesn't it glorify God? Then if we have a, a marriage partner who has betrayed us, but then has repented of that, if we forgive them, aren't we bestowing the same kind of grace that God's given to us? And absolutely. Let me clarify this as best as I can this morning. If that marriage can stay together, and yes, it'll be difficult and there'll be all kinds of hard work if if something like sexual immorality has come in. But if it's able to remain together, both parties can go back to the Lord and repent of their own issues and restore that marriage. That is the greatest honor to God. So let me just say that. That's the ideal. Now Jesus and Paul do say, look, there are some unique situations that happen. And while God's design is this, we understand that there are some very extreme situations and, and that's the context of what we were reading. So we should never read it with this like, oh, okay, here's my get out of jail free card. They've, they've now done this. I'm now free to do this. That shows that our heart isn't right as well. So that's the idea of what he goes through. And then this morning is a continuation from 17 to 24. He, it looks like he kind of takes a detour, but he's actually trying to create that or... or restate that same principle in a broader context, and then he'll go back into uh, marriage, singleness, and and what some of his uh, suggestions are to us, and we're going to look at that, uh, how he calls them suggestions and not commands, and why that that is so important. 
So let's read here from verse 17 to 40. It says this. Bless you. You might not have heard that online, but that was a good sneeze. Uh, Verse 17 says this. Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. Was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? Then let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. Was anyone at his time of his call uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. Were you a slave when called? Do not be concerned about it. But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. For he who is called in the Lord as a slave is a freed man of the Lord. Likewise, he who is free when called is a slave to Christ. You were bought with a price. Do not become slaves of men. So, brothers, in whatever condition each was called, there let him remain with God. Now concerning the betrothed, I have no command from the Lord, but I give my judgment as one, excuse me, as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. I think that in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. Yet those who marry will have, earth, will have worldly troubles, and I would spare you of that. This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none, and those who mourn as those who were not mourning, and those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing, and those who buy as though they had no goods, and those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. For the present form of this world is passing away. I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man, excuse me, the unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife, and his interests are divided. The unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit, but the but the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. If anyone thinks that he is not behaving properly towards his betrothed, if his passions are strong and it has to be, let him do as he wishes. Let them marry. It is no sin. But whoever is firmly established in his heart, being under no necessity by having his desires under control and and has determined this in his heart to keep her as his betrothed, he will do well. So the one who marries his betrothed does well, and he who refrains from marriage will do even better. A wife is bound to her husband only as long as he lives. But if her husband dies, she is free to be married to whom she wishes, only in the Lord. Yet in my judgment, she is happier if she remains as she is, and I think I too have the Spirit of God. So as we read through that, there's a lot of kind of little strange verses that kind of pop out and kind of make us wonder. And so I'm going to do my best uh, to deal with each of these. But again, we're dealing with a big text here this morning. So as always, if you have a question, if I fail to address something, uh, by all means, you write me an email, give me a phone call, show up at the office one day. I would love to, to continue these conversations. 
So he starts in verse 17 by simply saying this is, let each person live the life that the Lord has assigned. We need to remember God has purpose and plans for each one of us. And they're different for each one of us. And sometimes we long for things that God doesn't actually want for us. And so the issue is not trying to push my own desires and say, I need this, I want this, but to say, God, what would you have of me? What is your desire for me? In fact, if you think about it this way, is the sovereignty of God on your life didn't only happen when you became a Christian, right? It's not as though you make a commitment of faith and all of a sudden God is now overseeing. Is he's at work in your life right from the beginning. He's the one leading you to him. And, and according to scripture, in fact, the only reason that we can come to faith in Jesus is because the Holy Spirit convicts us of that need to begin with. God has purpose for you, for where you are. And that's what Paul's trying to say now. He's moved past marriage, at least for a moment. And he's trying to tell people the way in which you were called That doesn't mean it changes absolutely everything about your life. It does change how you view your life and how you understand your life. But just like in last week, the question kind of was posed of, if I become a Christian and my spouse doesn't, shouldn't shouldn't I leave because we now have different ways in which we understand our lives, uh, different things that are most important. So shouldn't we we get divorced? And, And again, like I mentioned, Paul says no. When we become a Christian, that doesn't mean you immediately change your job and move your house and sell everything you have and go be a missionary somewhere. Now, for some, that may be true. But the point is not that everything changes. Uh, Let me me quote from Richard Pratt. He says it this way. uh, Normally, a man is not called to a new occupation. Rather, his old occupation is given new significance. That's the way in which we should look at it. Now, obviously, there are, there are certain things that do need to change in our life. And perhaps you have a job where you have to be very deceitful. Well, then maybe you do need to change that. But normally speaking, we look at this and we go, you know, whatever my career is, it's now been given new purpose and new meaning. Because I don't only exist to make money at that job, but I exist to interact with those people that I get to see and talk with and share who Jesus is through, the, through my words and through my actions. Paul hones in on two very specific issues that are not kind of, they're, they're not issues in our time, but I do want to address them because I think sometimes they're misunderstood. Uh, David Pryor says, or he writes it this way, circumcision and slavery they represented the two most divisive phenomena in the world of the New Testament. Circumcision constituted the greatest religious barrier and slavery the biggest social barrier. And so Paul wants to deal with that. Now, now some have argued kind of, or, or asked the question of why doesn't Paul just outright condemn slavery here and tell them, slaves, you shouldn't have to be slaves anymore. Well, he does in some places in the scripture. He doesn't here. And the question of why, I think it's simply this, because Paul is far more concerned about the spiritual than the physical. Slavery is wrong, absolutely. And and much of the New Testament, Paul argues that circumcision is misunderstood, people are misinformed about it, and it's all about faith in Jesus. But he doesn't often get too hung up on those side issues. He rather uses them to bring them back to everything is about Christ. Everything is for Christ. Our lives exist for him. And so he doesn't deal with them maybe the way in which we want him to. 
But I think that should also convict our hearts a little bit to realize that maybe we're hung up on the social things a little bit more than the spiritual things sometimes. Now, granted, sometimes we're not hung up on social stuff at all, and we should be. We as Christians should fight for justice and mercy. Absolutely. But not at the expense of the spiritual. The spiritual is far, far more important. And that's what Paul is saying here. He's saying to those, you know what? When, when you came to faith in Christ, if you were circumcised, then fine. If you weren't, fine. It doesn't count for anything. What does he say count for something? Ooh, that was a terrible sentence. What does he say? Oh, we'll get it yet. What does he say actually does count for something? Keeping the commandments of God. Doing what God has called you to do. Being faithful So for us, that means reading Scripture and understanding that the things that Jesus taught, the things that Paul taught, the things that Peter taught, all these books of the Bible, that they are for our good so that we would understand how to honor God. And many of the traditions and the social implications of that day or of our day now are not primary concern. It's interesting when he does talk about slaves here because he says it this way. He who is called in the Lord as a slave is a freed man of the Lord. Right? So he's making an implication here. Your physical status is not where your identity is tied up in. If you're a slave, and he does say, if the opportunity avails itself for your freedom, then do it. But that's not your primary concern. Your primary concern is the Lord. Primary concern is that you would honor him and that you would live for him so that others can see this. And he says, if you are a slave, then you're actually a freed man of the Lord. But then he kind of reverses it and he says, likewise, he who was free when called is a slave of Christ. Richard Pratt says this, Paul raised the status of slaves here by asserting that the believing slave ought to consider himself a freed man and the free man ought to consider himself Christ's slave. In Christ, the ground is level Every believer is both free man and slave. Right, so he's trying to redefine things for us because we get too hung up on the material, what's in front of us, and forget about the spiritual. Now he moves back into relationships here, and this is kind of this concludes this section of the book. It's it's actually really good timing. Nick will be here tomorrow and then Easter Sunday, and then we'll be able to move on into chapter eight, which is a brand new section on. Uh, food sacrifice to idols, and I find that a fascinating section, and and I'm looking forward uh, to that. But here he says, now concerning the betrothed, or the engaged, however you want to term that, he says, I have no command from the Lord. Now, just like we said last week, is at one point, Paul says, I, uh, he says, the Lord, not I, when he's talking about something. And then a second later, He says, I, not the Lord. And we looked at it in the context of, is some of what Paul's saying inspired and some of it not? So we can listen to some and throw some out. That can be a very, uh, it's a common interpretation, but, but it's not what he's saying. Rather, when he says, the Lord, not I, he's saying, Jesus already spoke to this. The Lord himself spoke about this situation. And then when he says, I, not the Lord, he's simply clarifying, this wasn't spoken by the Lord, now this is spoken by me. And he says at the very end of our text here, he says, I too have the Spirit of God. And we believe that the Word of God is inspired of the Lord. So we believe everything written in here is of God. So that clarification that Paul's making here again is he's simply saying there's no commandment that comes from Jesus about this. But let me share with you what I think. 
He's giving us suggestions. He's giving us practical advice, things for us to consider. Right? He says this. I think that in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is, the implication, single. Or, or not yet married, I should say. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. Now, again, there's, there's, a, there's a context here in the Corinthian church that's happening. And uh, I was doing some research, and I found that one of the greatest persecutions against the church it, at this time, or, or in, I should say, the, the early church, happens here in Corinth. So there's a lot of persecution happening, and most commentators seem to think that that's what Paul's referencing here, is there's a great deal of hurt happening amongst Christians, and so instead of focusing on the worldly aspect of it, recognize that your days may actually be very short here. And so don't focus on the external, but focus on what is spiritual. If you do marry, right, and this is the clarification, if you do marry, you have not sinned. If a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles, and I would spare you of that. Now, again, let me clarify. Marriage is wonderful, but it's hard. And everyone who is married knows that, is you are a selfish person. I am a selfish person. We want our own things at times, and those desires from husband and wife, end up conflicting at times. And there's difficulty, and there's strife, and there's tension, and there's conflict. But even more than that, and I'm going to use a very extreme example, but it it speaks to what Paul's trying to get at here, is if somebody walks up to you and you're a single person, and they demand that you renounce your faith in Jesus, and you refuse, and they put a gun to your head, I hope all of us would have the courage not to back down. That yes, I believe in the Lord. But it's a very different thing when that person puts a gun to the head of your wife, your husband, or worse yet, your children. And I think that's what Paul's point is here. It's going to cause heartache and pain and difficulty because you love them, because you care for them. Shayla and I were talking about parenting stuff this week, and and all of you who have been parents, you know, you you get to a certain day or a certain point where you're like, "I, I don't know what I'm doing anymore. Like, I I have no wisdom. I don't know how to deal with this situation. There's not a verse that deals specifically with with this situation. And we just feel totally helpless. And and the anxiety and the stress and the difficulty that that can cause, it's, it's pretty intense. And I think that's all Paul's saying is if you are single, you don't have to deal with those things. And that could be a great blessing upon you. Then he says something a little bit strange in 29, right? The appointed time has grown very short. Same thing we just looked at. But from now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none. That seems to kind of contradict what he's just said, doesn't it? But if you keep reading and read it in context, it actually is very clear. Let those who mourn as though they were not mourning. Those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing. Those who buy as though they had no goods. Those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. Mark Taylor says it this way very simply. As important as earthly concerns may be, believers should never allow such concerns to overshadow eternal realities. Is that just the reality of it? I love my wife more than I love any person in this world, but not at the expense of loving Jesus. And in fact, my argument would be if I love Shayla more than I love Jesus, I'm not going to love her effectively, not nearly as effectively as if I put Jesus first. 
because he will give me supernatural ability to love her when I want to do what I want to do, when I disagree with her, when I think she's wrong, whatever it might be, is if I'm submitting to the Holy Spirit, I will care for her far greater than I ever could on my own. Everything should be about proper perspective in our lives. And, and I think we're all very guilty of this from time to time where, where one situation happens and it becomes the most important thing in our life. Or it's, or it's a stress, a, a moment, and we just start, that's it. That's all that matters right now. And we get so sidetracked or tunnel visioned on one issue that we lose sight of everything else. I'm sure that's happened to all of us. And what Paul's trying to remind us here is that, you know what? Your days are short. Right? Now, the Corinthians, he's maybe being a little bit more literal in that sense. But for us, that's not actually that much, or, or it'll come out, don't worry. It's not less true for us in the sense that how long is eternity? It's kind of a redundant question, right? Forever. How long do we live here on the earth? A relatively short amount of time. So may we always be looking at it like that. I think then when the crisis and the problems happen, there's still going to be problems, but they won't be nearly as big in scope if we compare them with eternity. One commentator I wrote, read it, or, oh, I can't talk today. One commentator wrote, a man who is a hero in himself becomes a coward when he thinks of his widowed wife and his orphaned children. That's what Paul's saying, I would, I would spare you of these anxieties. Now, those who are married know that it's worth it, but it's not easy. Right? Now, it all goes back to what Paul said earlier. Whatever God has called you to do, be faithful to that. So don't force it. If you are married, be honor or honor your spouse. Care for them. If you are single, honor your singleness. Recognize that God has called you to where you are in this moment, and that is a good thing. Don't force your own agenda. Now, there's some, some interesting verses here in verse 36 uh, that have been often uh, hotly debated, and there's kind of three main interpretations here, and, and I'll give you all three of them, but I'll explain to you why I think the third one has far more merit to it. Uh, than the others. Now, this all is based on verse 36. If anyone thinks that he is not behaving properly towards his betrothed. So that Greek word, if you go back to verse 25, there it is again. Literally in the Greek, it means virgin. However, some translations mention virgin in 25, but then in verse 36, they say virgin fathers which then creates some confusion. Which group of people are we talking about here? Are we talking about those who are unmarried? Or are we talking about the fathers of those who are unmarried? And that creates a big difference in how we interpret that. Um, the NASB, which is usually the most literal English translation we have, says virgin daughters. But then as I did a little bit of digging, I found out uh, the NASB has undergone uh, an edit and there's a new NASB 2020 that came out last year. And in that, they have taken away the word daughters. So they have said they made a translation error in their interpretation of that passage. They tried to make something clear, and they realized, we think we've actually muddied the waters, and they've taken it out. So most English translations now simply 
say virgins. Here's the three main views. First one is uh, fathers who give their daughters away in marriage. I think there's two problems with that interpretation. One, it doesn't fit the flow of the text very well. It all of a sudden really moves on to a different aspect of it. And the second thing is the father-daughter, or sorry, father-virgin-daughter metaphor is never used anywhere else in Scripture. And so it would seem like a strange thing for Paul to say. Uh, The second view is that Paul is talking only about spiritual unions. There were those who entered into a marriage only for the sake of a traditional norm, but they didn't actually want to be married in that context, and so they actually lived more like a spiritual brother and sister in one home, caring for one another, um, and, and, and their, their marriage was celibate because their only purpose in it was the social norms of the day. Uh, again, when you really study into that interpretation, uh, it seems very backwards to what the rest of this chapter is talking about, and it, it just doesn't flow right. And again, we always have to ask when we're reading this, what is Paul trying to teach the Corinthians? What is he trying to say? And if you're reading something and it's flowing and you understand, understand, and then there's just a wild leap, and then he goes back to something, it probably is more likely that we're misinterpreting what that one thing is. The third, and what I think is the most defendable uh, in the context here, is simply this, that the betrothed, they have not yet been married, and so Paul's trying to say to them, you know what, just because you are betrothed doesn't mean that you need to be married. If both of you are okay to live single, then that is my encouragement to you because of the times, because of the circumstances, because of what is happening. But then look what he says at the end of verse 36. Let them do as they wish. Let them marry. It is no sin. Right? So we're not talking about like right and wrong here. Paul clarifies that several times in this. He's saying, here's what my advice is to you. Now we got to remember, a single person advising to be single probably makes sense. And if it was a married person writing, he would probably advise to be married. That probably makes sense. In this context here, he's not trying to say right and wrong. He's just saying, if you are able to remain single, if you have uh, your sexual urges under control and and you, d- you don't feel um, that you're going to give in to those things, then maybe it's better for you to live as single. Right? So he says in verse 38, the one who marries his betrothed does well. The one who refrains from marriage will do even better. But again, that's not a command. That's Paul's suggestion. That's Paul's opinion on that issue. Now, I want to make a clarification on the last two verses here because Paul really doesn't touch on this very much. But again, I think in our culture, it's vastly more of an issue uh, than it was back then. So verse 39, a wife is bound to her husband only as long as he lives. Well, that just makes good sense, right? We, what do we say at our wedding? Till death do us part, right? Is once one of the two people have died, that, that marriage covenant is, is finished. It's over. Now, that doesn't mean that everyone should just go, okay, I'm just going to get remarried again. Some will go, I, I, I can't. I just, I, I'm not going to. And that's fine. And Paul's been arguing that. What Paul's trying to say here is you're not bound by that anymore. You are actually now free to be married to whom you wish. But then look, there's a little comma. And at the end of 39, it says, but only in the Lord. The NIV, which I, you probably know this, that's not my favorite translation. But they actually do a better job of communicating what Paul's point is here in English. It says this, um, She is free to marry anyone she wishes, but he must belong to the Lord. 
but he must belong to the Lord. That's what Paul's trying to say here. Is you as a Christian, and this is a command, right? Must. Understand this. He's been clarifying some things, and then he makes a command at the end. If you are a believer, when you get married to somebody, you are commanded to only be married to that person if they are in the Lord as well. So it all goes back to, remember, your marriage is meant to represent Christ's covenant relationship with the church. How can you do that if you're the only one that views marriage a certain way? Now, again, if you marry someone that is not a believer, can God redeem that person? Absolutely. Can God reveal himself to them? Yes, but that does not give us excuse or justification to go against what God is saying and saying, well, it worked out for these people that I know, so it's going to work out for me. That's just horrible logic. All of Scripture teaches us that despite us, God works through us. But he also commands us to do what's right, to do what's honorable, to live in a way that is biblically correct. So to look back on something and go, oh, you know what? It worked for those people, so it should work for me, is really just saying, I don't actually want to follow what God's doing. I just hope that he's going to do what he did over there too. It's just very bad logic. When we read scripture and we're commanded to do something, that's something that we need to take seriously. It's not a suggestion like some of these other things are. This is a command. Now again, I've got to clarify because last week, if you are married to an unbelieving person, whether that means one of you became a Christian after your marriage or whether that means you intentionally entered into a marriage uh, with somebody, and, and often it's talked about with there's so much potential, they're so open to God, they're so, doesn't matter. The command is clear. But if you have been married, that doesn't mean that because you made a wrong decision, if, if you married someone who wasn't a believer and you were, that doesn't give you a get-out-of-jail-free card. That doesn't mean, oh, you made a wrong, so you better divorce them, right? What does mom and dad always say to us? Two wrongs, don't make a right. We made our bed, we got to lie in it, we got to figure it out, we got to deal with the consequences of our actions. If we have married someone uh, and we've become a Christian or they've become a Christian, whichever party is, remember your marriage can actually serve that person to show them who Jesus is every day. Again, it's not an excuse. It's not meant to be like, oh, it's okay because. Paul's been very clear about this, trying to say, look, don't divorce that person, but stay with them so that they see Christ's love. But so often, and, and I can't tell you how many times I've had conversations or, or people come to me and ask me to marry them, and, and one is a believer and one isn't. And I just say, I, I can't do that. Scripture says that this is not right. But in our culture, and so often our culture speaks a lot louder than the Bible does. At least, maybe we tune the Bible out and listen to the culture more. As we start to say, well, this is, a, this is just, that was outdated. This is kind of a normal thing now. All that is is justification for doing what we want to believe rather than what Scripture teaches. It's very clear here. So that was just my clarification there. Last verse. Yet in my judgment... She is happier if she remains as she is. And I think that I too have the Spirit of God. I think he ends that, that sentence simply by saying this. If you disagree with me, that's fine, but don't just disagree with me without thinking about it. These are, these are my suggestions. This is my advice to those who are living in this time 
in, with marriage, with singleness. Don't give in to social norms. Do what God is calling you to do. And here's what I think about that. And so don't just dismiss it because I too have the Spirit of God. There's a verse in Proverbs, and I read it for us uh, at our midweek update, I think either this week or last week, where I just reminded that we are called to actually seek godly wisdom from other people or to include others in those decisions because they can speak to things that maybe we don't see, right? For all of us, everything's always objective when it's about somebody else. We can always see, man, you shouldn't do this or you should do this, but when we're in that moment, it's real hard to see that. So may we listen to others whose advice is different than our own. May we consider what truth is found in there and is that something I should be considering more seriously? At the end of the day, we have to be faithful and do what is right. And if there's no commandment from the Lord in Scripture, if there's no commandment from what we read in the pages of this Bible, then we have to use some discernment. We have to figure out what, what do we think is right, what do we think is wrong. But when it's matters that are clear, we have to submit to the authority of Scripture. That's what we as a church are always going to teach and always going to do because we do not trump the Word of God the word of God stands sufficient all on its own. Let's pray. God, thank you for this morning. Thank you for these words in scripture. And, and God, for those who are single this morning, uh, I just want to thank you for them. God, for those who are married this morning, I want to thank you for them. So often we kind of pit those two against each other as if it's some kind of a competition, but that is totally ridiculous. So God, would we, however you have called us, whatever your will is for our lives, would we submit to that and would we follow your leading and, and not push our own agendas? But would we watch and wait and see what you are calling of us? Give us discernment so that we would know what job to have, where to live. All those little details that are, are part of our everyday life, we want them, we want to submit them to you so that they're not things that we're pushing, but that we're just trying to be faithful to you. God, we thank you for this section of, of the Bible, which so often can be misunderstood or, or sound very difficult. But God, at the end of the day, all it is, and I said it a million times today, all it is, is a realization that you are in control and that we want to follow after you because your ways are much higher than our ways. Your purposes are greater than ours. What your desire for our life is, is the best thing that we could possibly do. So would we seek to follow after you in all of our decisions that we make? God, for those this morning who want to be married but are not yet married, would they consider what Paul has said here? More importantly, would they realize the command that if they do want to get married, if they are going to get married, let them get married only if that person belongs to the Lord. As we've discussed already this morning, marriage is hard work. And why would we want to enter into a covenant relationship with somebody who views everything differently? We know that we're all different. We have different personalities. We see things differently. But if we have one head, and that's Christ, then we know 
and we can trust that you will be at work in and through us. God, for all of us this morning, I just pray that you would be leading and guiding. Go with us today. Give us opportunities to share your love and word and deed to all those that we get to meet, that we get to interact with. We're so grateful for what you're doing in our lives. Amen. Thank you all for joining us. Uh, again, as Ernie said, we, we were one person short of capacity today, unless we count the kids as half each or something. But uh, hopefully, some of that will change tomorrow. We'll wait and we'll see what the rulings is or rulings are on those things. Uh, but if you do want to come to church, please do make sure you let me know and we'll mark those down so that, that we don't have to turn anybody away at the last minute. Hope you all have a wonderful week. I will be in the office until Friday and then we're gone. So if you need anything, please do stop by. Do give me a phone call.